Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy. And I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Today, we're talking about specific investments to make and others to avoid. We'll discuss the serious international news that's affecting our economic doomsday clock, and we'll talk about the difficult choices that we're already experiencing as a result of climate change. But Ronaldo, let's start here in California, where we're sitting today and where we're running out of water. Great. Hi, Matt. I'm listening. I'm really glad we're going to start with California. Um, for those of you who don't live in California, which is the vast majority of our audience, um, you, why I'm picking on California today is because I think it has so many of the elements that we need to talk about in the U.S. generally and in, in the whole world. It's a planetary conversation, really. Yeah. Let me explain why. California is in an advanced drought. I mean, it's so severe, people in the state have not yet begun to grasp or grasp the extent of it. Um, uh, special imaging pictures of the ground aquifers in the Inland Valley of California show that we've emptied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years of stored water. We are, we are really, really way past empty. And so the issues that we face in California with the severe drought um, are very similar to the climate change related issues that everybody around the world is going to face. So in our case, it's severe drought. But by the way, it'll be punctuated by weird floods too. It's, it, we're not going to have, we're not going to be exempt from uh, feast or famine weather. Uh, the, the point is that weather weirding, which in California, is, and I'm, just, I'm going to be specific, in Southern California, the bottom two-thirds of California is in drought. The top third is not. Now, in California, weather weirding is manifesting itself as severe drought. We're taping this show on uh, April 9th, and uh, yesterday in the Midwest, they had softball-sized hailstones breaking windshields on cars. There was a funnel cloud that formed over Sacramento, which is unheard of. And this is all going on in April. So, and by the way, there's a, everybody knows what just happened this last winter in the, mid, in, in, in the Northeast, all the way down the mid-Atlantic states. If you haven't kept track of it, for example, Venice is so far underwater. Venice, Italy. Venice, Italy. That even, thank you for that correction. <laughs> that even the strongest believers in that ridiculous gate system they're creating, which I've known about for many years and won't work, can't work, uh, even people who believe in the gates realize the gates are too little too late and don't solve the fundamental problem of rising seas. And when you say, what about America? Well, look at Miami. Miami is clearly going to go underwater. I mean, there's nothing we can do to turn that around at this stage, pretty much. I shouldn't say nothing. I take that back. There's a lot we could do but are not choosing to do. And every day we're putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, therefore causing more methane to belch, therefore causing the temperature to rise as fast as the hockey stick CO2 graph that uh, popularized by Al Gore, 
And now weather weirding is following that same trajectory where we have these incredible episodes of, of um, hot and cold, of flood and drought, of snow and dry, these incredible episodes with huge variations from peak to valley, and they're coming ever closer together with a greater frequency. Okay, that is the situation California finds itself in. And in that sense, it is very typical of the rest of the planet. It's just here, it's manifesting as the worst drought of all time. What California hasn't done is it hasn't come to grips with that. And what I, what I mean specifically about not having come to grips with it is, see, if California really understood that this isn't something where they have to be looking for when the drought will end, which is what they're currently thinking, what they need to think about is what's the new normal? And how do they get that new normal to begin to uh, develop a possible future scenario, which California is capable of, because for the first time, and then here I want to talk about Governor Brown for a moment. For the first time in years, California is not only solvent, it's cash flow positive. Its bond ratings going up and up and up, and frankly should. Um, the power of what has happened in Silicon Valley as an economic engine in the state of California is globe straddling and clearly changed the biggest change of my life and probably the biggest change in your lifetime and that change in silicon valley from transistors to solid state electronics which revolutionized the world we live in that change is smaller frankly than the change that's now occurring in the san diego area of california with biotechnology with genomic research with epigenetics so that whole biology world is now going to become a bigger business than silicon chips. Yeah. When you put on top of that, that the biggest business is yet to be born, which is the business of changing the entire planetary fuel system from the one we have now based on scarcity, fossil fuels, to the one based on abundance, hydrogen as the carrier fuel. That hydrogen economy, as it starts to come online, will even dwarf what's going on in San Diego, which in turn dwarfed Silicon Valley. All of these things are coming out of California. So California, at 38.5 million people, the largest state in the nation, seventh largest economy in the world if it was a separate country, is handling the drought very, very poorly. And I really want to pick on Governor Brown because a lot of what Governor Brown did was really right in his second term here. But like his second term last time, some stuff he's doing is a little goofy. For example, he's saying cut back water by 25% to the residents. Sounds reasonable, unless you stop and realize that only 12% of the water in California is used by residents. So 38.5 million people only use 12% of the water. That's astounding. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Where does the rest of the water go? It goes 80% of it to agriculture. Right. So literally, Brown is putting almonds in front of people. It's, it's untenable. It can't work politically. I don't understand why he's doing it. Um, second thing I see that's really amazing is... Uh, and then I'm going to end on citizen action, by the way. The second thing I see that's amazing is why on earth would you permit fracking 700 million gallons of water you can never use again, and which is polluting your aquifers? Why would you permit fracking and not even slow it down while you're trying to carb 12% of the population so that they spend 25% less energy than they would have? Meaning, he will get his 25% reduction, but it will only improve the water picture by 3%. Yeah. So you got to go after the 80% in agriculture and you got to go after fracking. Why isn't he stopping fracking? Because it's giant lobby, I think, in, in Sacramento. Same thing with the agricultural lobby. 
Why does he say almonds, the most water-intensive crop, 75 to 80% of all the almonds in the world are grown here in California. We do not need it as an export crop. Why is he protecting the almonds? Huge lobby for agribusiness. And it's Blue Diamond is, is the leader of that one. So what, what Brown is doing is he's failing to lead us through the drought in meaningful ways that would improve our situation. I would, I would submit that's what's happening over and over again at the state and federal level and at the, na the nation level across the world. Yeah. Citizen action. You want, you let, want to... let me let me jump in there. Uh, this is an important topic, so I don't want to I don't want to. And you've just said a lot, so I don't want to miss any of it. W one piece is that the eighty percent of California's water used for agriculture, and a lot of that is for export. Uh, ag and food processing only represents about two percent of California's annual domestic product. I mean, that's like that's eighty percent of our water going in to get two percent of the economic activity. Okay. By the way, just stop there a second. So how many people in the state of California, 38 million people, how many know what you just said? Very Probably few. very few. I pay a lot of attention. I didn't know that until I read it about half an hour ago. Okay, so and, and you and I talked about it this morning. That's why I'm glad you went and looked at it, looked it up. See, we don't have to be in the business of selling almonds to the world. We do have to be in the business of flushing our, our toilets and, 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 and brushing our teeth. And by the way, there are literally many people living below the poverty line in the Inland Valley of California today who cannot turn a tap on, who have no water in the Visalia area. It's amazing. So, so we are literally putting all more almond exports because Blue Diamond has effective lobbies ahead of people being able to literally flush the toilet yeah. or brush your teeth. So that's got to stop. How do we stop that? Well, we have to say, wait a minute. It's time for some citizen action. Why has California got a balanced budget today and is financially healthy when it was a sick poster child for so many years? Prop the answer is, yeah. Prop 25 in 2010, when California voters passed a, a resolution uh, with, a, with a majority vote in the state to create a, a budget process that didn't require a two-thirds vote, but instead a simple majority vote. That's right. So what happened when it was a two-thirds vote is every Yahoo assemblyman from every district in California had blocking power, basically. So the pork never ended. And they could never close the budget off because people kept putting their fingers in the till. So when the public finally got tired of this because the government wouldn't fix itself, the public passed Prop 25, and since 2010, it took effect, I believe, in 2012. I think that's right. And every year since then, we've had a budget. I mean, we now have budgets on time, and they're balanced. Actually, they're positive surplus budgets. Now, that, to me, was a direct result of citizen action. But then the other one, you got to tell them about Prop 11. And then Prop 11 in 2008 was the redistricting uh Shift where instead of having politicians drawing their own lines of their of their districts, it went to a review panel uh, with a split Republican Democrat and then a bunch of nonpartisan votes also to actually do a, a smart, fair redistricting across the state. Okay, so as all of you know, and I, I just picked on Governor Brown for not leading properly as a Democrat. I'm going to pick on the Republicans now. If redistricting were allowed under the Constitution the way it is in California, which is now rebalanced, districts make sense now. They don't have these bizarre-looking districts that basically keep the Democrat and the Republican parties in control. If we had reasonable redistricting at the federal level, every election since Gore would have produced a Democratic House, including the last one, by the way. More votes came for Democrats. But because of the gerrymandering of these districts, the Republicans ended up with control of the House and control of the Senate, which means a minority is now running, because if you think about it, about 15 to 20 percent at most of the population even vote, what, 25% of them, even 20% voted, 
when you take the registers and the non-registers out. And of that, a majority of them voted Democrats, but a minority of them, probably, I'm going to guess around 5 6%, I'd like to see what the number is, ended up electing the Congress we got in the Senate. And that same Senate was bogged down with the same crazy two-thirds rule that Prop 25 abolished in California because it should only be used for urgent, I mean, crisis things was a two-thirds vote, not for every budget, and certainly not for every uh, every politician uh, to use as a, as, a, as a club in the U.S. Senate. Right. But then when you look at 2000, the Prop 11 in 2008, you say, wow, if we had normal districts, then the people of America could vote whatever party they wanted into power to change the country as they saw fit. We don't have that now. We have a very small percentage of the population. Uh, somebody... I think it was Bob Seifert who just announced his retirement recently, at once said, if you don't vote, you can't criticize what happened in the election. You can't complain. You can't complain. Exactly. And so you can't really complain, but we can try to inspire people to notice that if they would vote, this is where citizen action comes in. Both these propositions were citizen action. We can talk about other citizen action items later in this broadcast, but I am really interested. I mean, fundamentally really committed. Please, I've never missed an election in my adult life, and I don't intend to. You've got to vote. Whatever your beliefs are, you've got to vote. Because if you vote, a majority will control. I'm willing to let the majority rule. What I don't like is the tyranny of the minority. That I don't like, regardless of which party it is. It happens to be that right now it's Republican. So I, I would criticize the Republicans for the tyranny, for, for Citizens United. I would re- criticize the Republicans for the floodgate of money they put in after Citizens United. There's a lot of things to criticize Republicans for. By the way, there's a lot of things they're doing right that I like, too, I could get into. But I've got to also criticize Governor Brown, a Democrat, for the lack of leadership on this critical issue of drought in California, which he should be setting, uh, he should be setting the example in California for not only how to solve the drought, how to solve energy, how to solve water procurement, and how to build an economy that's bigger and better than the one we've got today, which I think we will have, without kowtowing to small parochial economic interests like the almond and the walnut industry. I mean, we got to stabilize this state and say, look, you can't grow water-intensive crops for export when people can't brush their teeth. Yeah. It's an interesting problem. And it's, you know, as you said before, it is something that every every region, but especially the United States, is going to have to start dealing with here as a result of climate change. I mean, these are the hard choices we're going to be making from here on out. Um, and I, I'm just really interested to see how that how that plays out, and we're kind of living in a microcosm of that right now in California. And by the way, let's let's just spread it again so people take it's, it. This is a morality play. California is just the example here, but let's play it with the Midwest, for example, okay, um, or or Florida. I mean, if anybody thinks that Miami's not going to be underwater like Venice, they really don't read the newspapers. I mean, the water's already gurgling up from beneath the ground in Miami at high tide. Okay, so Miami is probably gone, but it's more than just Miami. It's a huge chunk of Florida. You know, say goodbye to Disneyland in 20 years. It ain't going to last that long. I, I think that the issue really, though, is what do you do in the Midwest? And in the Midwest, we have to re-examine. I was sharing with, with Matt before we went on the air. we got to re-examine how long it is that we stopped living in caves. So we've been around for about a million and a half years as a, pop, as a you know, humanoid species. At least a million and a half. Some would argue two and a half million. But I'll take the more conservative number, a million and a half. And during that time, all but the last 50,000 years, we've been living in caves. So what it means is we've been living in caves for less, for 97% of the time we've been humans. And less than 3% of the time we've been living above ground. And the way we chose to live above ground is really crazy. You know, like stucco. 
not real strong in a 200 mile an hour wind. So if we're going to be dealing with the climate re weirding or weather weirding I've been talking about, in the Midwest, we have to be prepared for, for hurricane force winds on a regular basis. From tornadoes, yeah. Tornadoes. Yeah. Well, hurricane force right. from tornadoes, right? Big, huge tornadoes. Yeah, but we're talking 250 mile an hour tornadoes. And so what we need to do is look at what kind of housing makes sense in that kind of world. Well, clearly caves do, living below ground, by the way, it makes a lot of sense. But what also makes sense is if you're going to be above ground, you're going to have to have different structures that aren't square boxes made with cheap lumber. You're going to have to consider rammed earth conical housing, for example, which, by the way, is less expensive to make. Mm. You know, and, and, and we're going to have to consider how we live above ground. We're going to have to consider how we trap water and use it. We're going to have to consider what... How much longer are we willing to destroy our environment with whether it's reinjection of fracking? Do you know what happened last week in Oklahoma? Fabulous story. So Oklahoma, oil and gas state, right? Mm. Fabulous story. Okay, so every scientist who's now looked at it says conclusively fracking is what's causing all those earthquakes. Oklahoma never had them. Now they're having them constantly. Yep. And, 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 and part of what it is they say, they've identified that they're injecting too much of the fracked water back towards the scene of the plate and that's causing lubrication and therefore the earthquakes. Now, we also know they caused earthquakes in Ohio. So it's not new information that fracking causes earthquakes. What's new information is that every single scientist, without exception of any consequence, has now said in Oklahoma, this is directly caused by one source, fracking, and the Oklahoma legislature is not even willing to introduce a bill. Okay, why? Because oil and gas controls Oklahoma. Right. Now, citizen action. Folks, if you live in Oklahoma, you got to understand, your house will not stand if you don't cut it out. Okay, you got to talk to your legislators. If you live in, in Florida, you got to talk about climate change to that crazy Rick Scott ex-felon governor you got. You know, you've got to talk about every barrier island in the United States is gone, as far as I can tell. So you got to talk about that. you got to talk about what's going to happen to the next Superstorm Sandy. And, of course, you got to talk about what happens to California if we don't get smart with citizen action here. So what I want you to take from this, folks, is from the pain you see in California, you'll be hearing a lot about it in the years to come. Please remember, it is a choice whether we choose to let it bankrupt our state or just be a problem we overcame. It is a choice whether we address the climate change issue with smarter policies or whether we continue to be run by a small group of oligarchical private financial interests. That's the same choice facing every human American today. It's the same choice facing every European. It's the same choice facing everybody on the globe. The only people who don't have a choice are the people who are the worst victims of climate change, who tend to be the poorest of the poor. And I know I, in the last show I covered, I believe I covered, Bangladesh. The stories that come out of Bangladesh in the last 30 days are even worse. So we're now looking at situations in Bangladesh which are accelerating. Uh, you're going to see worse stories all over the globe. It's going to be a regular drumbeat of news, and I think what we need to do is to keep focusing on the fact that there are solutions. See, it's not inevitable that this climate change crisis I keep talking about has got to happen. It's a choice. Now, if you live in the middle of Kenya, maybe not. If you live on the Sahara Desert, maybe not. If you're really, really poor below the poverty line and one of about 3 billion people who really cannot even, you know, don't have a, a decent source of water, I can't blame you for the choice because you probably don't have much choice. You're probably a victim of a bigger system. But for 3 billion people on the planet, this is a choice. We don't have to build the next 350 power coal-fired power plants that are planned for China. We shouldn't and don't have to build them. That's a choice. 
We don't have to build the next 400 coal-fired plants in India. That's a choice. We, we, we don't have to do these things. And if we choose properly, we get a whole new world that works a lot better. I'll end with this comment. Christian Lagarde, Lagarde, the head of the IMF, just issued a statement yesterday saying that we better get used to slow economic growth because maybe that's the new norm. I totally and categorically disagree. First of all, the U.S. is going to do 3 to 3.5% 3 this year, which is not that slow. Second of all, I believe Europe could maintain and exceed that standard if it was reasonable. Right now it's not being reasonable, and I think we're going to get into Greece later, right? Yes. So I won't get into that now. But the point is, all these choices we are making, these bad choices, are coming home to roost. You know, we often say as adults and parents to our teenagers, be careful the choices you make because there's consequences. Well, I'm saying to the people of the world, starting with the California example, I'm saying, look, folks, there's choices. But don't think you will escape the consequence of the choices you make or fail to make, because it is up to us. We are the people we've been waiting for. So before we move on from California, Ronaldo, I want to actually ask you to talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on in San Diego, uh, the biotech uh, sector growth. I just think that's interesting, and we went kind of fast through that. Okay, great. I mean... Uh, for people who don't know, I, I, I haven't kept track the last three months, but the three or four months prior to that, certainly within the last six months, there's been at least 500 new business incorporations in the San Diego area. What's happened is there's a triangle that's formed. And the triangle, in the old days, Silicon Valley was formed by a triangle of Intel and HP, together with Stanford University, together with the business, business interests of Silicon Valley. That was the triangle. Uh... Today, that triangle is San Diego metropolitan area, which includes places outside the city of San Diego. Scripps Institute, which is? Scripps is uh, in La Jolla, California, which is a leader in uh, biogenetics. Um, Craig Ventner, who is the guy who did the sequencing of the human genome down in San Diego. And um, UCSD, which has a very active epigenetics and biogenetics department. Uh, for people who don't know the difference between epigenetics and biogenetics, epigenetics is the is the dicing and slicing and dicing at the level of uh, of, of uh, the genes in your in your in your DNA. It's like it's right down at the deepest level, um, and and what to do to adjust it. So, for example, there's a thing on the end of your genes called the telomeres, which are a little squeakly tail, and literally the shorter the tail gets, the less time you got to live, and the longer the tail, the more time you got to live, and the better you live. So, long telomeres is a good thing. So uh, the woman who got the um, award for that, the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres, was Elizabeth Blackburn up in San Francisco, UCSF, I believe. But Elizabeth has been working with us at the Chopra Foundation, which is one of the world leaders now in epigenetics and in um, self-directed biological uh, awareness and, and how, to, how to create longer life and healthier life. Uh, but what we've done at the Chopra Center is we've entered into this triangle with UCSD, Scripps La Jolla, uh, UCSD, and all the companies that are right in Ventner's people, uh, although not Ventner directly. Uh, and what we've been doing is doing amazing studies on how to commercialize what we've learned. I'll just give you one example. We now know for a fact we can extend anyone's life by at least 10 years and that the quality of that next 10 years will be better than the last 10 years, even if you're 80 years old. Wow. Okay? We know we can do it. We know, how to, we, know exactly, well, we know how to do it. We know exactly how to do it. And that's just the beginning. Can you imagine what that's worth to people when that starts to get out there? 
Um, we're doing a thing on, on the human biome right now. And this is a quick one, but you'll like it. For those of you who don't know, only 10% of the cells of your body, every single one of you listening to me today, there's only 10% of your body as human cells. By number, right? By number of cells. Yeah. 90% of you, of your cells, are bacteria. So we basically are ambulatory bacteria colonies. That's what we are. But by weight, it's still more human cells. Yeah, right? it is, but but, but, but not by function. Like that, right? And now here's why it's important. I'm glad you made that distinction. Say, so we thought that the human cells controlled the bacteria. That was the up until last year. That was everybody was sort of buying into that theory. We now know it's probably the reverse. Hmm. Your bacteria actually is what's telling your human cells what to do. It has more control over your DNA than you do. Now, when you think of yourself as 90% bacteria colony, well, ambulatory bacteria colony, it's first of all, it's humbling. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> Number two, what it says is if you knew how to manipulate that bacteria so it could positively affect your DNA, holy jumping Methuselah. So on one level, the biological revolution is about growing uh, artificial hearts from pig organs. Mm -hmm. And the, the amazing work we're doing in artificial lungs, artificial that's, everything. That's bioengineering is what you're calling that. That's, okay. that's kind of like bioengineering. Yeah. Um, but when you get down to the level of genetics, you're talking about manipulating the genome. Mm -hmm. And epigenetics is going below that. And every one of these has massive economic consequences. But here's the best one. We now have a system called Affordable Care, Obamacare, which is beginning to put a premium and it'll kick in more and more each year from here on out, to health providers and hospitals to keep patients healthy instead of paying them for what they get sick. That then pushes the money in the direction of preventative medicine for the first time instead of dealing with the, with, with the symptoms right. after the fact. That's feeding in to the genetic and biogenetic revolution in San Diego. Mm. So, for example, tests are coming out of there now which are able to predict all kinds of stuff that are in advanced form of, of, of review right now to, in order to be able to predict what's going to happen to you. Your genome is being sequenced so we can predict. Uh, very famous, just what, a little over a week ago, Angelina Jolie disclosed that she had a full hysterectomy, removed her everything. She did everything. a hysterectomy, oh yeah. Yeah, after doing the, she did a double, bio, a double mastectomy. Now she's done the hysterectomy because she wants to, she knows statistically, genomically, because of her genome, that she's got a pre-indication towards cancer. And so she's saying, I want to take that out of the equation if I can, which is pretty brave of her. But she's making a great statement that the world can see. Well, that's just genomics. Genomics. When you get below that, you get to epigenetics. And I'm very proud to say that Deepak Chopra is one of the leaders in the world in this field. Okay, now to bio. Well, yeah, I want to, I want to before you go there, I want, to, I want to just make sure our audience knows how to find out more about what you're up to at the... Uh at the Chopra Foundation. For those of you who, who didn't know, Ronaldo is the is the president of the Chopra Foundation board. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Where can they find out more about this? Stuff? It's actually not president of the board, but technically I'm president of the foundation. President of the foundation, which sorry. has a board. I'm on the board also. Um, yeah, I think that um, go to the Chopra Foundation uh, uh, on the on the web, and that's spelled C H O P R A. I'm sure all people know that. And when you do uh, look at the S B T I. Samuel Baker Thomas India SBTI information particularly, and some of the works on the, on the some of the stuff that you'll see up there on biomes. Um, any event, the point I'm going to make about biome right now research, and, and I don't uh, right now this is a huge ethical question, Matt. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to relate to you a study 
that has been performed successfully and replicated in rats, which have a very, very similar genomic background to us. So next time you call somebody a dirty rat, you're actually right. <laughs> Pretty close to right. Anyway, on rats, it's never been tried on humans because it raises such amazing ethical questions. I predict that it will be tried on humans in other countries. Uh, my prediction would be Costa Rica and India would be the two places most likely to try it first, or China. And what you can do is you can take, and uh, I'm not ex going to explain on this show why we call it the poop study, but uh, if someone wants to write it, I'll explain why it's called the poop study. Anyway, you can take a bit of bacteriological material from a juvenile rat, put it into the system, and you can do it orally, of the adult rat. So the parent of this juvenile rat. It's important that they're parent and child because the closer your DNA, the better this works. And what will happen is that bacteria will tell your DNA in the adult rat that its biological clock is off. And it will readjust your time to the age of the child. Right. Now, this is staggering implications. Since Ponce de Leon went to Florida looking for the fountain of youth, no one has come up with it. This apparently is the closest we're going to come in my lifetime. Wow. So that's just one example of what we're doing to pioneer things at the Chopra Foundation. Very cool. Working with scripts. We're also doing a lot to prove conclusively. We have a uh, we have a peer-reviewed paper coming out. Actually, it just came out, I think, or is coming out shortly on how meditation, which everybody thought would extend your life and improve the quality of your life, actually does. And this is from a very interesting study we did with scripts using uh, helmeted sensors, uh, galvanic skin sensors, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And we took experienced meditators, brand new meditators. We did all kinds of stuff. Anyway, that paper is about to come out. And there's one that's in process behind it, which is even more groundbreaking. So there's a lot going on. Uh, the Chopra Center is helping to catalyze and is also benefiting from all the research that these other institutions are doing down there. So I'm very excited. And by the way, Harvard's been involved with that peer-reviewed study we did, as was uh, Mount Sinai and some other major universities, very including cool. us, uh, UCSF. So we're really pushing the, the envelope on this. That's and that's Deepak's passion right now. That's really interesting, yeah. And again, for people who are interested in hearing more, it's the ChopraFoundation.org and the SBTI initiative where they can, you can read more about that. And we'll update you as those breakthroughs happen. A quick note for our listeners, the World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our work relies on people like the listeners of this show to join in and help support it. We have a $25 a month associate member level that I'd like to encourage you to sign up for on our website at worldbusiness.org. On the right side, you'll see a tab that says Become a Member. Uh, click on that and sign up. It's pretty easy and quick, and your support is essential if we're going to keep uh, being able to do this show and being able to fight for a, a real safe future for our families and our and our civilization. Uh, Ronaldo, I want to move now to uh, some actual grounded uh, positions you see in the market and uh, things you see happening uh, around oil and around potential sunrise industries. So let's start with uh, what Shell is up to these days. Oh, this is my favorite. Uh, this this is more fun for me than you can imagine, folks. Okay. So um, I forget now what, what, what month, I think it was March of last year, uh, for 2014, when I told people that oil stocks were going to go sideways and down. And I said, sell all your oil stocks, not because you're an environmentalist, although I don't have them for that reason. Sell them because it's smart economically to get out of oil. Now, since then, I'm proud to say oil stocks are down almost 50%. I'm glad. So I hope people took my advice and they sold out. So now, now they no longer hold oil stocks. Well, what Shell is doing opens an entirely new opportunity for us. 
So if you are an environmentalist, or if you're just greedy and want to make money, I have a new idea for you on oil stocks. Here's my new idea. Short sell Shell. In other words, bet against Shell. Here's why. Shell, which is not particularly well regarded as a source of great acquisitions in the last 20 years, has decided to buy a company called BG. Now, BG is an interesting company because it, it's directly associated with Petrobras in Brazil. Petrobras is the company where the president was removed for graft and corruption. And in fact, uh, Dilma Rousseff in Brazil is coming under some calls for her resignation because they think the corruption of Petrobras, a state-owned oil company in Brazil, actually reaches to the president's office. So it's a serious corruption scandal. All kinds of heads have already fallen, including the CEO of Petrobras. However, BG is totally tied into that. And Shell is betting somehow that BG will magically dance away from that. That's number one. Number two, Shell is notorious for large overheads and is not very nimble. BG is, BG is smaller and more nimble, therefore probably able to make more profit. Now being swallowed. So dinosaurs are mating and the least efficient of the two dinosaurs is going to be the survivor. Number three, here comes the best part. When you look at it, as many independent analysts, this is not just Ronaldo talking, this is OXA, this is, I could name at least three different prominent independent analysts, all of whom are not environmentalists, have looked at this deal and said, gee, if oil, which is Brent crude, now Brent crude for our audience, as you know, Brent is the price of oil in the North Sea, West Texas Intermediate is the price of oil in the United States. West Texas Intermediate is trading around 50, 50 51. Brent C is now about 57, so a spread of about $6. And the reason for that spread is because, historically, it costs money to ship money uh, oil from Texas to Europe. So they add that to the price of Brent. But typically, there's been a ratio where they've stayed within pretty close with the shipping costs. So Brent C, or the price we pay for oil in the international market, Brent C crude, is around $57 right now a barrel, down from 120 The Shell deal absolutely is destructive of Shell's capital structure if crude oil in Brent doesn't get at least to $70 a barrel. So it's got to go from 57 to 70 As listeners to this show know, I have predicted that the maximum upside the oil companies will ever see is 65 to $75 a barrel. So if I'm right that the maximum they'll ever see is 65 to 70 Shell has bet the farm that they will achieve the maximum. So a very myopic view of what's going on in the oil market. Number two, which by the way is not surprising because if you think you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So okay. Shell thinks the world's going to return. They're betting that the world of controlled oil prices is coming back. I would say all the signals to me are the exact opposite. So if, if Brent, by the way, if Brent crude goes to $90 a, a barrel, 9-0, Shell wins. This was a good deal. Now let's say it hits 65 to 70. Well, no, 70, 75, Shell breaks even. They took a big gamble, but they survived. They didn't get hurt. Below 70, Shell gets hurt. Much below 70, Shell gets really hurt. So the question is, we're at 57, or we're going to go to 70 or beyond. I believe it's possible we could spike up to 70, or even 75, conceivably. I don't think we can maintain it there. I delighted in driving to the office today and noticing that the price of gasoline at the pump has returned once again in California despite the manipulation by the by the refiners here. They try to jack it up a buck. They could only keep it up there for about three or four weeks. It fell back to its normal level. So right today, if you want to buy gas 
in Santa Barbara, California, you can buy in one of the most expensive states in the country, you can buy regular gas for $3.03 a gallon, not $4 a gallon. That reflects the belief that currently there's way too much oil in supply, the demand is not strong enough, everything that can hold petroleum is stocked to the gunnels, every refinery is floating to their teeth in extra oil, every ship at sea is kept at sea so they can keep more oil floating, and at the end of the day, we can't absorb it. And that's before Iran comes back on the market, if in fact there's an Iranian deal. It comes back in a real way, right. Iran. Okay? It's before Iraq continues to lift its production. It's before the Kurds, now free to, release, to increase production, increase their production. And it's not even allowing for the fact that there'll be any more Brazilian deep water drilling because there won't be. Oh, and by the way, I think BG's got an interest in liquefied natural gas, which also is problematic to me as we switch off of it as a fuel. Now, people could say natural gas is a great play for the next 10 years, are probably right. So I'm not gonna hold that against BG but, or Shell. But I will say that the idea that Shell made a smart bet is really, really, really questionable here. And therefore, if you wanna gamble and you'd like to see yourself make some money possibly, you could short sell Shell stock. Now, I'm not, an, I'm not a financial advisor, licensed to give financial advice. I'm not a stock promoter. But I am an economics commentator. And what I'm commentating on is the profoundly stupid economics of the Shell deal. And I want to say, I'll end in this note. I believe that this dumb Shell deal is more important for how it reveals the state of mind of the people who are running Shell and other big oil companies who believe in the inevitability that they will once again recapture the planetary fuel system and not be challenged by renewables. They're wrong. They're on the losing side of history and they're betting their fortunes, as usually happens with entrenched industries, looking in their rearview mirror rather than looking at the sunrise. They're yeah. looking at the sunset. Yeah. And in terms of the sunrise, there's an industry that you were talking about here uh, that you think is a sunrise opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about 3D printing? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so and this is a fun one. Um, and why I'm talking about it is people keep hearing about 3D printing, you know, when they, when they, when they turn on the news. And if you haven't been listening, folks, you Crawl out from underneath that rock. <laughs> 3D printing is a hot new enchilada. And what it is, as you probably know, folks, 3D printing is being able to create images in three dimensions, so solid objects, by squirting the appropriate uh, goo. And there's various forms of goo, which we can go into. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the more plasticity you want, it's one kind of glue. The more strength you want, it's another kind of glue. I mean, people believe you'll actually be able to make a jet engine with this process at some point. And I think they're probably right. What 3D printing is doing is saying that computers and the power to display information so precisely and the power to inject so precisely the flow of the glue or the goo is such that you literally don't have to mass produce anything anymore to start getting the economic advantages of mass production. So I can make one of something really economically. And if I want to make more, like I can make one copy on a Xerox machine, or I can make 10 copies. Pretty simple. Just right. push 10. 3D printing works the same way. So 3D printing does for making physical objects the way paper printing revolutionized our world 40 years ago. 40, 50 years ago now, I guess. Xerography, probably about 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with the... Started to happen in the 50s. The printing revolution, but... It started I, to happen in the 50s. You know, the, the printing press obviously changed the world. Well, yeah, that and was now Gutenberg. You, now you have a printing press for objects. Well, yeah, and, but I'm talking about the printer that sits on people's desks that started being produced for, for thermal paper originally mm -hmm. back in the 50s and 60s. HP, I think, led that trip, trajectory. 
and then became um, you know so prevalent in the 70s everybody had a printer I mean I mean you know that's everybody every office you wouldn't think about not having a printer in your office right and then of course by the end of the 70s everybody had one and then they kept advancing advancing well 3d printing is going in that same direction so here's a funny question I want to ask so why would it be that two of the leaders in the 3d printing world specifically 3d systems which is based in the US and Israel's Stratasys so 3d systems is, is traded here uh, the publicly traded shares and uh, Stratasys is, is I guess Nasdaq traded it's the Israeli company so taking 3d as an example 3d systems stock has fallen 71 percent since 2014 from $96 at the start of 2014 to $28 today. Stratasys is down 61% the same period from a high of 136 to 56 today. Why is that happening? When these are the two pioneers in what's going to become a massively huge industry. The answer is the business community has decided that 3D printing is inevitable. It's here to stay. So now the big guys are coming in. HP is going to have their... their 3D printing division, they claim it's going to work cheaper, more efficiently, more effectively by 2016. That's not far away. Other companies will be coming into the industry as well. So you're going to see the big boys coming to market. And the fear is they'll push the little guys that got there first out of the way. In addition to that, which has started to depress the prices about a year ago, there's one other change on the horizon, which just was announced. And, and by the way, there's some winners in this change. Um, Autodesk, for example, a company people might know of for software, is doing something very smart. They're selling their software to the suppliers of the goo and the, and the mechanical parts to go along with them so that they can assemble it. So they're, 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 they're going to win no matter who wins in the 3D world. And they're big enough to play in that league. So Autodesk looks very attractive to me. But one of the things that looks really interesting is this new development, which has just happened, uh, and we don't know if it's going to if it's going to work, but it appears like it works. It's called continuous liquid interface production. It's really a phenomenon. Let me say that again. Continuous liquid interface production. It was developed by a Silicon Valley startup called Carbon 3D. I'm not recommending you buy that. Please don't take it that way. What I'm, what I, what I'm trying to draw attention to is that the speed with which the injection process can occur, the liquid interface part of the injection process in 3D printing, if Carbon 3D's technology is what it says it is, and it looks to some independent observers like it is, it means that 3D plastic images will be able to be created 100 times faster than today. That's staggering. That's mass production. That's like going from a copier that put out one page of printed material in 10 minutes to a copier that puts it out in three seconds. And it's really even, it's amazing. So, wow. Okay? Yeah. So, What's happening to the stock, and this is now I'm answering the riddle I asked, so why are 3D systems, and an example, Israel's Stratasys, why are they down so bad? Because A, big boys are coming, and B, there's potential revolution in this field, as happens when technology kicks in, that tends to make the early adopters, the pioneers, not the ones who make the most money. In fact, many pioneers don't survive. Hmm. Uh, I was told at a very famous business meeting I was in where I was the target of this comment, um, by a gentleman from Atlanta, Henry Harris, at the time CEO of Cox, who thanked me for being one of the co-inventors of pay television and proceeded to tell me that you understand you're going to sell to me at a price I will dictate because, and this is a quote, 
It's in the nature of pioneers to be shot dead along, to be found dead along the trail with arrows in their back. Wow. So we settlers can get through. Okay, that's a direct quote from Henry Harris. Now, why I find that fascinating is that the idea people need to realize that's really critical when they are evaluating their own financial decisions. It isn't necessarily being first is best. It's good. It has some advantages. And in the case of people like Apple, if you can keep reinventing on top of that, you can become like Apple, the biggest company in the world. However, in a situation where we have smaller companies, who, by the way, they're, who are not financially living up to their projections, they're not achieving the kinds of margins that they thought they could achieve. They're not achieving the kind of growth rates they thought they could achieve. So with the, with, with the stock analysts watching them under a microscope now, they're going, oops, these little guys had a great idea, but they're probably the pioneers that aren't going to make it. The wagon trains are coming. Who's in the wagon train? HP and a lot of the big companies. So the pioneers may not survive on this round. Those two pioneer companies, other pioneers may. Autodesk, clearly, Autodesk pioneering in the software has a better chance of being a, both a pioneer and a settler. But even Autodesk will now find competition coming into the market because it's now becoming a big enough market that other companies like Autodesk mm. want to supply software. Yeah. So it's a fascinating story. Uh, I think it's it's one of the most inventive thing happening in the world of commerce today, and I urge everyone to keep their eyes. Put it on your radar screen. Just do it like I do. When, when, I, when I see something that's interesting, like 3D printing a couple of years ago, I just put it on my radar screen. Just watch what you see. Excellent. Now, Renaud, let's turn to our doomsday clock. Uh, our doomsday clock is a, a measure where we describe essentially the possibility of an economic collapse scenario, and that would be midnight. Uh, right now, as of last month, our clock was at 11.50. That's 10 minutes to midnight. Uh, where are we today? 11.51. Sorry to say. So we're we, ticking we, closer to midnight. Okay. One minute closer to midnight. And my concern is that that one minute... Uh, could easily be two minutes by next month. What's happening? A couple things are happening. Uh, Grexit, which stands for Greek exit, is happening. And what is that? Uh, Grexit means that the Greeks are going to default in their debts. Uh, European banks are going to take a huge hit, particularly German banks. Uh, and um, the Greeks will be dropping out of the euro. So they'll leave the euro currency. Yeah. Neither the Greeks not want that nor do the Europeans want that, but I see them on a trail where collision is coming. I want to lay most of the blame at the feet of Angela Merkel. Uh, Angela Merkel's austerity campaign, which she's been doing for the consumption of her German constituency or German electorate, is crazy. It hasn't worked anywhere in the world. It's totally stupid. It's inflicted massive amounts of pain on Greece. They still have close to 50% unemployment in Greece. I mean, who would tolerate that? So because Greece owes Germany so much money. And all the banks. And all the banks. But Germany's been the, the biggest creditor. Yep. They've forced Greece to cut social spending and increase unemployment yeah. in a gambit that supposedly was intended to pay them back. Yeah. And ra what they should have been doing is getting off of the austerity thing. They should have been saying to Greece, look, you got enough problems just trying to have an honest tax system. Let us help you fix that. Uh, you got enough problems to get, to get your welfare state under control because you're paying people at the age of 55 to retire when nobody can retire in Europe until 65 or longer. So they should have done a turnaround in Greece. They should have done a turnaround. Not continue to Yeah, and, and, and the only way you can do a turnaround is if you stop firing people and throwing them in the streets. Because what the Greek electorate has said is whatever dropping out of the euro looks like, it looks better to us than what you've done to us. And the, Greek, the Germans haven't been willing to hear that. 
Um, the Germans, I think part of it, the, the German electorate, uh, Angela Merkel is probably the most powerful woman in the world and certainly very bright. Uh, so she, I'm sure she knows what I'm saying is true. I don't think there's any doubt. She knows what's coming. Uh, unfortunately, her electorate has this very deep Calvinist strain, strain in it, Lutheran Calvinist strain, uh, where there's a desire to punish, not unlike the U.S. penal system, which itself is so badly broken. That, by the way, we should talk about that. I, I, there's, I'm looking at real opportunity to reform the penal system in this country, mm -hmm. finally. Both Democrats and Republicans are on the issue, which is incredible. So we might, if we have time, we can get into that. But go back to the Germans. So they have this Calvinist punish them stream, Lutheran Calvinist punish them stream, and you know, make them pay for the party they had in our nickel and all that sort of thing. And you know, there's you know the you know, how, you know the, the the moral question of like you know like a, where's the moral risk if you don't make them pay for it? They'll go out and do it again. All that stuff is true in some sense, but Greece is much more fundamentally broken than that. And the Germans knew when they did the euro that they were taking a chance that they, until they could get some fiscal restraint to match the monetary centralization, there's no way they could control the euro long term. And so they're lucky it's only Greece that's at risk. You know, if you look at the bond ratings, uh, the international bond ratings on Italy, Portugal, Spain, they're all fine right now. No one sees Greece leaving the euro as the unraveling of the European common market or even the European euro, the monetary union. What I see and why I'm concerned about this one minute closer to midnight is what they have done is with this crazy policy, which is punishing the Greeks rather than helping them fix what's broken, because fundamentally Greece is broken and they need to fix it. But they need to fix it. It's going to take time. It needs, it, needs, it needs a turnaround plan. It needs a concerted international effort. Failing to take that because they wanted to punish, in quote, Greeks is going to force Greece out whether they like it or not. So even though Greece doesn't want to go out and the Europeans don't want to go out, I see this rupture coming because the adult in this case, Angela Merkel and the European Union, is not acting responsibly, and the child, in this case Greece, is going to do what children always do. They're going to show that they're going to up yours kind of thing. They're going to take advantage of the situation. And the problem is that the Greeks alone are going to have one massively hard time to fix the Greek economy. They can do it, and enough pain, which is coming, might force them to do it, meaning finally start taxing people, finally start dealing with corruption, finally start dealing with an out-of-control welfare state that's way beyond socialism. Nothing wrong with a welfare state. Scandinavia does it brilliantly. But the Greeks have done it very poorly. Okay, but here's the real issue. The real issue is Russia. Let me show you why. So yesterday, the Greek Prime Minister Tsiras went to Moscow, met with Putin. At the very least, I think he's going to get what's called the soft fruit deal, meaning the Russians are going to drop the prescription of soft fruit being imported from Greece to Russia. I think they're going to get way more than that. Now, the, the Russians cannot afford to bail out the Greeks. Everybody knows that. But what the Russians can do is when the Greeks are out of the European Union, which is where they're going, the Greek currency, the drachma, will plummet. I mean, they'll have to reissue it, and it'll be a highly depressed currency. The ruble, highly depressed currency. So here you got somebody virtually on the borders of the Soviet Union, practically, who grows food really, really well and really cheaply. And they'll be selling it in drachma, which makes it affordable to the Russians who really, really need food and who have cheaper rubles to pay for it, who can't really be in the world normal world market because they're running out of money. They're really going broke in Russia fast. And I don't see a turnaround in the oil prices, so Russia going broke is more likely to happen. So two things are going to be a result. One, there's going to be a broader agricultural deal with Russia and the Greeks. I think that's almost a certainty. And number two, yeah, I wouldn't put it by the Greeks to sell 
the Ukraine's down the river. And they, well, what they'll do is they'll basically say that we're not going to go along with further uh, sanctions on Russia for what they've done in the Ukraine. Before they leave the euro. Well, they, no, no. They can leave the euro and still be in the European Common Market. Oh, I got you. Okay. So that's the, that's the bind. See, that's why you don't want the euro, a monetary union, independent of the political union. Right. So you got 27 countries in the political union called the European Common Market. You only got um, 17 in the European in the euro. So 10 of them aren't in. Britain, for example, is not in it. Uh, Switzerland. A, yes. Well, Switzerland's not in the European Common Union either. Oh, they aren't. Wait, wait. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. There, Switzerland is outside of the, the European Monetary Union. So, it, the, but the point is, yeah, for sure. But the, but the point is that, um, and I'm going to get distracted here, the, the relationship of the European Union to the European Monetary Union is like a smaller layer cake sitting on top of a bigger layer cake. What the Greeks are doing is they're dropping out of the smaller layer cake but I don't, they're not going to drop out of the bigger layer cake. Right. And what we've urged in this show on the pa- in the past and continue to urge in the face of the Grexit, or Greek exit, we are urging that a new third layer be created on top of the smaller layer. And on that third layer, you put the Germans and anybody who wants to have their debt in the euro guaranteed by Germans. So you create fiscal and monetary union in that third tier. If you don't want that, go back down to the first tier, be part of the political union. But the second tier should go away because the second tier is completely uncontrollable by anybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's monetary union without fiscal union, and it doesn't work. The, you know, one of our fellows for many, many, many years, two decades, um, Bernard uh, Matier, one of the four people who literally is considered to be a father of the euro, warned the Europeans, listen, unless you do fiscal with monetary, the euro won't work. And they said, don't worry about that. You're, you're a theoretical economist. You just worry about creating the euro. We'll worry about the politics. <laughs> And he warned him, and he's warned him repeatedly since. And we talk all the time, Bernard and I. And, and the fact is, the euro is non-sustainable as strictly a monetary union without the fiscal interface. I looked up the question about Switzerland because I, I figured out why I was confused. So you're right. Switzerland is neither part of the EU nor the European Economic Area. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is part of the single market, which means Swiss, na- Swiss nationals have the same rights to live and work in UK and other European economic area countries. Yeah, and that's a very odd um, little con- combination that happens. And by the way, that got that happened in part because they wanted to create a way to, uh, what's the name? There's a name for that, uh, those countries. Sechen countries. Sechen, Sechen, I think I'm like that's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- th- that group of countries basically makes it easy for skilled workers to move back and forth right. and not have to get and thrown out of countries because they don't have enough visas. Anyway, it's a long story. So, the, a couple more points in the economic doomsday clock quickly. The the bad jobs report that came in last month, it was still showing jobs growing, but it wasn't up to uh, the numbers that some analysts had predicted. And you, you don't think that's a huge deal? It's nothing. It's a, it's a, it's a non-event. It, it, it's a function of March's weather, uh, what happened in February. Well, I, I should say it's a non-event. I, the part that's real worth looking at is we're getting closer. Every time we knock another half a point off the unemployment rate, we get closer to... Structural unemployment, meaning structural full employment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. below which unemployment can't go. Uh, we're not there yet, and uh, I think we're at five and a half percent of my my memory serves me right. And um, so we got a little bit more room to go, but not much. So job expansion won't happen as fast now as wealth will increase, but job expansion will happen because wealth is increasing. Here's what I mean: two things. We've already talked about them on this prior on the show in prior months. 
all the states that have increased the minimum wage, and now the companies that have joined in. And it's true, people are taking a lot of shots at McDonald's. They only did the company-owned restaurants, not the franchisee restaurants. Yeah, eventually the franchisee will, will go up also. And, you know, they were holding out for $15. They only got 10 Okay, but they got 10 uh, And um, Walmart is going 9 this year, 10 next year. You got Home Depot. You got all these big companies that are finally, you know, starting to raise the minimum wage. As that happens, and, and I won't name the CEO who told me this, but as one CEO said to me, how am I going to hold my people to $7.5 an hour when it's less than what Walmart pays? It's... It's politically not desirable in your own company. So the, the, the sea is now rising. So the poorest of the poor in America are going to get their, with or without federal action by the Congress, which is great. So we're now figuring out how to run the country without the Congress, which we have to because they're not running the country. So we said, okay, we're going to raise the minimum wage. That's going to create consumption because every penny that someone making $7.5 an hour or $7.25 or $8 an hour or $10 an hour Every penny they make, they will spend because they have to to stay alive. They will spend it on food. They'll spend it on shelter. They'll spend it on fuel. And as the gas prices stay low, creating more disposable income, can you imagine somebody working on seven and a quarter an hour, commuting to the same job, but paying 35 to 45% less for their fuel every week? Huge. Where does that money go? They can't afford to save it. It goes into shoes. It goes into clothes. It goes into... Um, food. It goes into dental care. It goes into Obamacare insurance premiums. It goes into all these things. So those three items, number one, the increasing uh, use of the minimum wage going up, both because of the states, the 16 states I think now raised it above the federal, and the private companies. Number two, the continuing depression of oil prices, keeping the price of the pump down. And the third thing, which I just alluded to, the fact that Obamacare has slowed the rise, the rate of rise of healthcare premiums, and now is actually stimulating the beginning of preventative care so that we'll be investing in how not to get sick rather than how to fix you or surgically remove your bladder when you are sick. Uh, those three twin activities are causing an increasing amount of disposable income. One more thing will kick in, I believe, by the second half, and I predicted this last year. Now I'm sure it's going to happen. You're going to see wages tighten by the second half of this year. And you're going to see some wage growth in, uh, it'll be small, it'll be tiny, but I think you could see enough growth in the average wage starting in the last six months of this year that combined with these other factors, you might see a tiny, tiny, tiny closing of the gap between the poor and the rich. Wow. You might see as much as a half a percent close. Uh, too soon to tell that. I'm not predicting that yet. I'm looking for it. I'm watching it. It's on my radar. But it's possible that the rise in wages by the second half of this year will begin the process that within 12 months you will see, or sooner, the slow, ever so glacial beginning of the close of this gap that's been growing since the 70s between the top 1-2% and everybody else. If that happens, it's a small little thing, but it's huge news and great for the economy. Yeah. Great. Well, so that's the economic doomsday clock. We're one, one minute closer to midnight, which is not good news. And we'll keep watching that until next month. And watch what happens between the Russians and the Greeks. And we'll see if we have to move that clock even further because if they sell the Ukrainians down the river, that's going to hurt. Uh, on behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for joining us. And thank you, Ronaldo. Please come to our website at worldbusiness.org and stay in touch with us in between shows. Thanks, everyone.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.